be seated as you are seated. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14 this morning, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 25 this morning, a more extended section of Mark's Gospel as we head to the cross. The shadow of the cross is, is there upon Jesus as he has set his face to Jerusalem And we come now as we're walking through Mark's gospel to a meal of historical and eternal significance. If you were to list just meals that stand out to you within the course of human history, not your own personal meals, you know, if you were given a litany of those meals, it very well may be that the date of 1612, Plymouth Colony, which is reported to be the first Thanksgiving meal, stands out to you. Maybe for those of you that uh, have, have, have Hamilton uh, upon your mind, 1790, and there you have uh, Thomas Jefferson brokering a deal over this meal between Alexander, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Uh, we know no one else was in the room where it happened, but at the end of the day, when they got out of the room, they have this deal that has been brokered here. Madison gets the location of the Capitol in exchange for him supporting Hamilton's financial plan. More recent history, uh, we know, uh, historians tell us, that as, as uh, the passengers were fated for that uh, fateful collision upon the Titanic, uh, the first-class passengers dined very decadently. Their 10-course meal, four hours, accompanied by a string orchestra. Uh, all of these and many more you could come up with with these just memorable meals, but all of them pale in comparison historically, but even greater uh, of significance eternally, they pale in comparison to the meal that we read of in our passage of Scripture this morning. Read with me starting in verse 1 of Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter. As Mark tells us of two home encounters that frame for us what da Vinci has has garnered in his artistic rendition, the, the Last Supper. Let's think of a meal that is perfect for we imperfect people. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, him being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. 
And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to, to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And it was the evening. He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They begin to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? He said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, and it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here we have a meal that is framed by these two home encounters that give us insight into the very importance and significance for your life and my life of Jesus' sacrifice. His very life poured out for you, poured out for me. Uh, notice with me these contrasting portraits of two homes and the uh, prelude to that Last Supper meal. Notice first a portrait of true adoration. We start not in the upper room, but we start in Bethany, Simon the leper's home. There's a woman who comes in. Mark does not name her. John's gospel helps flesh this out. This is Mary. There are a lot of Marys in the gospel. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who comes in breaks this jar, anoints Jesus with all. She spares absolutely no expense in adoring Jesus in this moment. The fragrance of this oil would have been overpowering to all that were there. No one, no one would have missed the significance of what she was doing in this moment. People begin to talk. How, how dare she waste how dare she waste uh, 300 denarii? We could, we could do so much for the poor. If we had received that money, she sold that jar. But Jesus says, no, 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 you'll have the poor with me. He's not discounting ministry for the poor, but he understands in Mark chapter 14 that he's headed to the cross and this woman out of a pure act of love with great sacrifice gives to Jesus in this moment all that she has. Now, you, you need to understand, and it's easy to miss this, but, but you, you have working women in the first century world, but they did not. The majority of women in that first century world are absolutely excluded from earning wages. 
So to, to get an insight into what Mary has done is, most likely she has taken a family heirloom. Something of great worth, again, an average male's salary for a year, that's what it's worth. But think about the, his, the, the familial memento that she has, the, the, the connection emotionally that she has, and she doesn't just pour it over Jesus, she breaks the flask. It's never going to be used again. It finds its culmination in Jesus in this very moment, Jesus silences the crowd of those saying, what is she doing? What is she doing? And says in verse 8, she has prepared my body for burial. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's been talking that he's headed to the cross. He's been alluding to this, foreshadowing this, and it is Mary who has 20-20 spiritual vision. The disciples, they're blind to the very fact, even to the very end, they're blind to the fact of where Jesus' destination is. But not, not Mary. Mary sees Jesus for who he is. She knows that he is headed to the cross. She sees him, and out of this pure act of love, out of this great sacrifice, she gives to Jesus all that she has. And Jesus says, she's going to be talked about forever. She, she's going to become famous because she has given her all. I think moms in this room, this doesn't happen often, but think of your young child, maybe five-year-old daughter, five-year-old son, who, who has gone out into the backyard and comes back in, and, and he has a, a bouquet of dandelions that he's picked out of the backyard, or she's picked out of the backyard, and she runs in, and she's so proud. She's got this smile upon her face. He's got this smile upon his face and says, Mom, I picked these just for you. And you say, what have you done that you need to tell me? You know, you, you maybe are a little hesitant, but what he says in that moment or what she says in that moment, I did this just for you because I love you this much. It's all that he has to be able to give to you. It's all that she has goes out into the backyard and is given to you the best because of who you are as his mom, who you are as her mom. This is what Mary is doing. All of her best she brings to Jesus in this moment. She knows he's headed to the cross, anoints his body, but ultimately it is a pure act of love. It's impractical in every way. That's the beauty of Christian worship. You don't commodify it. It's the beauty of our praise to him. Uh, Non-Christians look upon what we do as we sing and as we praise him and as we give, and there's a sense of impracticality to it. It's the beauty of what we're offering to him out of this overflow of adoration that he, as that flask has been broken, so his body will be broken. As the oil fills the room with the, with the uh, fragrance, so with the fragrance of death. We pour it out as Jesus' blood flows from the cross. So this moment, this pure act of love of Mary is ultimately foreshadowing the pure act of love for you as Jesus dies upon the cross. And so what does Jesus demand in light of what he has given to us? He demands our all. I, I love that old hymn hundreds of years ago, Isaac Watts. Surveying the beauty of the cross and says in that moment, 
that his love is so amazing. Jesus' love is so amazing. It's so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. So Mary gives Jesus her all. It is a portrait of true adoration. Notice the contrasting portrait. If you're filming this, there's a, there's a real quick cut that moves from Simon the leper's home, and, and the music in the background is this ominous music. We know we're going into the villain's home. The scene changes as a portrait of contrast because now we see Judas going from Matthew's gospel. Matthew helps us flesh this out where he is going. He's going to an extravagant palace. The high priest is Caiaphas. He is betraying Jesus for 30 silver coins. Judas is one of the 12 one of Jesus' own, the betrayal of Jesus is not an outside job. It's an insider job. The betrayal of Jesus is done by one of Jesus' closest associates, one of the 12 disciples. Judas has walked with Jesus. Judas has heard the teaching of Jesus. Judas has seen Jesus' miracles. Judas has all the proximity to Jesus without intimacy with Jesus. Judas has been with Jesus, heard Jesus, but it's not enough to have proximity because your proximity doesn't always equal intimacy. We see this, we, we have to look at this passage and say, why, Judas, why? What motivated you to go from one of the 12 and to become this, this figure of betrayal no, no name. This is a name that's retired. No one names their children Judas. He is the portrait of betrayal in every way. Dante, in, in the, uh, the, the lowest realm of hell itself in the divine comedy, has Satan chewing upon Judas eternally. The greatest betrayal right here in this moment. Why, we ask, why? Now Mark, in his gospel, He's silent much on the motivation. We have to flesh that out from other gospel accounts. Luke chapter 22 tells us that Satan enters Judas in this moment. John's gospel, the 13th chapter, talks in these frameworks that Satan prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Mark is silent in this moment, but again, we can flesh this out. We know from the gospel account that Judas, as one of the 12, had the unique responsibility to be what? What was he? He was a treasurer. The 30 pieces of silver, that's a part of it. There's greed that Judas has. It is Judas and loose gospel when there's a similar act of adoration that Judas says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? So yes, greed's a part of it. We don't need to leave Mark's gospel and just simply say Judas does this because Satan made him do it. No, there's human culpability to Judas's act. Judas is not a mere uh, puppet on the strings of, of, of Satan's will. But no, Satan utilizes Judas's motivations, his evil thoughts, and he sees an opportunity to silence the mission of the incarnate Son of God. So yes, there is an eternal cosmic work at play that, that Satan is a part of, but understand that Judas has free will in this moment. 
Judas is frustrated. It very well might be that Judas has watched Jesus. He put all of his hopes in Jesus. He loves the nation of Israel. He, he thought he longed for this Messiah to, to kick Rome out. And Jesus has, has disappointed him after disappointing him again and again. And so it very well may be that out of greed, out of the very influence of Satan seizing an opportunity, that G Judas says in this moment, I'm, I'm going to press Jesus' hand. If I can back Jesus into a corner, I know at that moment he can call down all the angels and he can kick Rome out of here. But he doesn't... He, he doesn't realize that the type of kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating in his ministry and in his death is not a political kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom that is going to do battle, not with Rome first, but with Satan first. So Judas's motivations, well, Mark is silent, but I tell you what Mark does. He gives us one of the most chilling passages in all of the Gospels. You see it there in verse 11. Look with me. Mark chapter 14, verse 11. It stops us in our tracks. And when they heard it, these are the chief priests. They were glad and promised to give him, Judas, money. And he, Judas, do you hear it? He sought an opportunity to betray him. There's no Hamlet-like soliloquy. There, there's none, no point that Judas is lamenting a tragic decision. There's no sign of internal struggle. There's no Judas looking up to God saying, should I do it? Should I not do it? No, there's just icy resolve to betray Jesus in this moment. Now you ask, how does Judas intersect your life? How does he intersect my life? Well, just like Mary, once and for all, we, we don't anoint Jesus with oil in preparation for his burial, but we offer to Jesus our adoration, our love, our all. So Judas, there's a once and for all betrayal of Jesus that Judas does in this moment, never to be repeated again. But th there's a principle that, that lurks in any follower of Jesus's heart. And that is that your proximity to Jesus, it just doesn't guarantee intimacy with him. Your proximity to the word of God doesn't guarantee intimacy to the word of God, Jesus himself. Your proximity to the things of God, you can serve him, be in his church. All of these things are good things. All of these things are following after him. We can sing our praises to him, but deep down we need to know that our, our proximity to the things of God doesn't always equal intimacy with God himself. It was true for Judas, and if it was true for one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, how much more true could it be for you and for me? I mean, just think about it. How much more true could this principle be for you and for me? Uh, football has started in Alabama. Not all schools, but a lot of schools are my two older boys are playing on different teams, uh, middle school, high school, so we're going forth with games. And so just last week I was at a game. 
Uh, we're standing up, we're clapping. Uh, the, the team that my, my middle school son was playing for was doing really, really well in that game. I looked around and I noticed that it looked like a sister. I don't know, maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's a friend. But in the middle of all of the game, in the middle of the touchdowns and the fumbles, in the middle of the 15-yard scrambles, first downs, that never once did this young girl look up from the book that she has. She's just unmoved by the cheerleaders, unmoved by the band, unmoved by the action on the field. Huge turnover in the fourth quarter. Interception sealed the win for our team. Everybody's standing up. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's excited. I look, and what does she do? And she's reading her book. Never looks up. Why? Because you can be in the stands and not be a fan. You can be in proximity to the game, but not be into the game. You can be there in body, but certainly not be there in spirit. You can be in proximity, but not be in intimacy with him. Notice this, a portrait of lasting rebellion. Notice this, a portrait of true adoration. Finally, this is the culmination of the chapter. It moves us, all of this, into the upper room. So we've gone from Simon the leper in Bethany. We've gone now to the extravagant palace of the high priest. Now it comes back together. We're in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal. That is not insignificant. The Passover meal is Easter for the Israelites. It is the holiest festival of the year for them. It's the exclamation point in their story of God looking upon the Israelites. They're in bondage in Egypt, centuries after centuries. God, he, he, what does he do? He calls them out of Egypt. He sends curses down upon a hardened Pharaoh. The final curse is the death of the firstborn, but there is a Passover event that happens. How do the Israelites survive this? Why does not every Israelite firstborn die? Because God says, I am going to pass over. I'm going to send the angel of death. But if you sacrifice a lamb, and if you take the blood of that sacrifice, and if you put it upon the doorpost, when the angel of death comes by, it is going to pass over your home. So every year, they reenact the Passover. Every year, they have that meal with unleavened bread. There's a sacrifice of the Passover lamb. There are bitter herbs that they eat. Every year, they look back, but every year when they're looking back, they realize this is what God has done for us. So Jesus says, we're going to celebrate the Passover. Mark tells us that they go into the upper room. Notice that we have the blessing of bread. We have the blessing of the cup filled with wine. Notice while they were eating, Jesus identifies in verse 26 the significance of the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He says thanks, and he says take and eat. Verse 27, he takes the common cup filled with wine. He gives thanks. He says drink from it, all of you. This is my covenant poured out for forgiveness. Now, all of this meal is, is about the Passover. All of this meal is intended to showcase the very heart of the Passover meal, but notice when Mark gives us detail, what detail does he leave out? What's missing in this Passover meal?
What's not there? I'll tell you what's not there. The Passover lamb is not there. The very heart of what they're supposed to be doing, it doesn't uh, receive any attention in Mark's gospel. And we think to ourselves, well, they forgot about the Passover lamb. Well, no, they didn't. Because the Passover lamb is more present than ever in this moment. John's gospel, the first chapter, verse 29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And what does John the Baptist cry out? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is why we, in light of the Last Supper, celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I tell you what you don't do and I don't do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't go out and sacrifice a lamb. Because once and for all, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So just as God in the Old Testament looked upon the doorpost and if he saw the blood covering the doorpost passed over that home and there was safety in that house, something's got to cover the doorpost of your heart. The angel of death comes for all of us and something has to cover the doorpost of our heart. And the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus, as the Passover lamb, when he died upon the cross, his blood was shed. And when we, by faith, trust in him, so we receive the covering of the forgiveness of our sins, life anew, not only the abundant life now, but eternal life forever and ever. The judgment of God that came for the Egyptians and would have come for the Israelites, any Israelite who does not have the blood upon the doorpost, they receive that judgment also. And so all of us stand under the judgment of a holy God because you and I, we all are sinners who deserve death. We're all sinners who fall short of his holy standard, but this is just the great news that God sent his son to be the Passover lamb. And eternal death, separated from him forever, does not have to be my destination, nor does it have to be your destination, because we can trust once and for all in the Passover lamb. That was the Last Supper that reminds us every time when we take the Lord's Supper, as we hold the bread in our hand, as we drink from the cup, so his blood has been shed, so his body was nailed to a cross so that he is the Passover lamb for you and for me and for all who would turn to him. So what is our response to this? So we're there in the upper room. How will we respond to him in in the inauguration of the new covenant? The covenant through his blood, what will be our response? Well, it can be one of two responses. It can be the response of Mary, which is absolute adoration for what he has done for you and for me. We adore him by worshiping him. We adore him by offering our all to him as living sacrifices for him. Or we can be in the house of the high priest. Or we can be in the way of Judas where we can have proximity. Have you ever seen, I should have had it here, but it just comes to my mind right now. When you see Da Vinci's Last Supper, 
It's interesting because Judas, so here's Jesus in the center. If you're going to my left and to your right, you get to Judas and he's just peering in. There's a shadow upon Judas. He's peering in, looking at Jesus. And there's some of us that that, that's where we stand. We're in proximity to him, but there is not real intimacy to him. Is it adoration or proximity without intimacy? What is our response this past week? What is our response today? And what will be our response today and tomorrow? That, that's the question. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning grateful that you have sent your only son who is the once and for all Passover lamb for all who would turn to you. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus, your son, his perfect life, so we can receive forgiveness of sins as he shed his blood upon the cross. As death has been defeated through his resurrection. As the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon the doorpost of all of our hearts, so the angel of death passes over us and we receive what we do not deserve, which is forgiveness and life eternally. Help us in light of what you have given to us through your Son. Adore you. Extravagantly adore you. Withholding no part of our life. No aspects of our thoughts, no aspect of our worship, no aspect of our, of our professions. We, we don't hold it back. We just give to you in gratitude for what you have so graciously given to us. Help us see that, that we can be close to the Word of God. We can be close to the things of God. We can, we can be in the church, but, but be far from your Son. We're all prone to this. We're all prone to wander. We're all prone to leave the God that we profess to love, and we do love. Thank you for your forgiveness even when we lack that intimacy that you call to us and you bring us back into your fold each and every time that we say, God, we confess our sin. So today, may we receive the cleansing of confession. May we be restored to that intimacy with your Son through your Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.